start with a story some of you are familiar with. It was a man who lived on the frontier of China who one day discovered that his favorite horse had run away to the nomads across the border. Greatly upset, the rest of the villagers tried to comfort him, but his father said, What makes you so sure this isn't a blessing? Some months passed, and lo and behold, his horse returned, bringing with it a splendid nomad stallion. Of course, the man was elated and showered with the congratulations of the whole village. His father said, What makes you so sure this isn't a disaster? The household was richer by a fine horse, which they said the son loved to ride. One day he was riding, and he fell, and he broke his hip. Disheartened, everyone tried to console him. His father only said, What makes you so sure this isn't a blessing? A year later, the nomad tribe invaded, and every able-bodied villager was dragged into battle where nine out of each of the ten villagers lost their lives, only because the son was lame and the father too old did the son and the father survive to take care of each other. We could put this story in another context. Sometimes we come and sit, and it can be great. You know, our body cooperates. No pains, even maybe some pleasant sensations. Our mind cooperates not so noisy, not so clamoring. We feel perhaps really calm. And we're so quick to say, this is a good sitting. Why is it good? Maybe because it's pleasant. Maybe because it fits the story. Maybe because it meets up to our expectations. How do we know it's not a curse? Sometimes we come and we sit. It's very different, isn't it? It's a terrible sitting. You know, the body aches. Every part aches. Even the eyebrows are in pain. The mind aches. It clamors. It shouts. It jumps. It flits. Everything's disturbing. We're so sure it's a bad sitting. How do we know it's not a blessing? The sitting that was so good, how do we know that that's not the place where we're actually setting ourselves up for the next disaster as we pat ourselves on the back and congratulate ourselves and perhaps even reinforce the grasping mind that says this is only what's acceptable? You know, the sitting that feels so bad, how do we know that something is not ripening and coming into consciousness in a way which it can be seen and let go of and understood, in a way which we might be shedding years of holding and contraction. It's very difficult to know. And I know sometimes you come and you ask us, and the truth is we don't know either. This is the truth. We don't actually know. We don't know. This is actually a really difficult practice for those who are in love with signposts and goals. 
and who like to be able to put everything in very clear-cut compartments, you know. I mean, this practice, you can imagine if we did this practice in a way where we said in the first day, you know, our goal here is two breaths in a row. You know, most everybody actually would feel a lot happier. You know, because you could go and say, two breaths in a row, I did that. You know, I know where I am, I know where I'm going, I'm right on track, you know. You know, and then the next day we said, okay, today the goal is four breaths in a row. You know, and on the third day we said it's, you know, four breaths and two sounds. You know, you could imagine you'd have these really clearly defined goals, you know, and then you'd have real signposts too, you know, by which we could grade ourselves and say, ah, I'm getting somewhere. You know, sometimes we come and we sit and it's really quite neutral, you know, and we could spend a whole day, two days, three days, four days, quite frankly, weeks, months even, really being quite neutral. You know, not much is happening. It's neither clamoring nor is it really happy, you know. Things come and go and there's not too much excitement and, you know, not much seems to be changing and it's very easy to say, you know, nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Have you ever seen a bird build a nest here? Months, one twig at a time. Half of them don't even make it to the tree. They fall on the ground. You never see, watch them. This little piece of grass, one at a time, you know, going up into that tree. Half the time, another rook comes along and rips it off falls down, probably one out of ten pieces of grass actually makes it to the nest. And lo and behold, one day there's a nest. How do we know nothing is happening? There's both a great longing in the mind to be able to quantify, describe, define, because there's a tremendous security in that. And yet, in that same capacity to quantify, define, categorize, it's a tremendous amount of suffering too, isn't there? Oh, now I'm doing well, now I'm not doing so well. You know, I'm doing better than yesterday, I'm doing worse than yesterday. I'm making progress, I'm making no progress. I'm going backwards, I'm going forward. That endless kind of measuring of ourselves, doesn't that voice sound familiar? I mean, didn't you ever hear that voice in your life of being measured? you know, and defined by what you could produce, by what you could show, you know, your report cards, you know, your behavior, your clothes, your vocabulary, your appearance. Isn't that a very familiar story? And was it ever a happy one? I don't think it was ever a happy one. And yet many times we internalize that story both looking for security and at the same time um, buying into unhappiness. Buying into unhappiness. Buying into suffering. With a bigger truth, certainly that we come in contact with in this practice is we don't know. We don't know. And there is something actually so liberating and so peaceful in not knowing. You know, to have the patience just to keep turning up. That's a remarkable skill in meditation. 
to have the patience to keep sitting down, walking around, you know, sitting down again, walking around. You are turning up for yourself. You're turning up for the present moment. And there's a whole lot in there which is actually not in our control. And yet everything we do in turning up sets in motion a process of unfoldment in which we are revealed to ourselves and in which everything is revealed to us. Anyway, all of that actually had nothing to do with this talk, which was about equanimity. Right, so I'm going to get back to equanimity. You know, we seem to live our lives poised, often poised between these extremes in life. You know, there's love, there's hatred, there's gain, there's loss, there's praise, there's blame, there's pleasure, there's pain, there's beginnings, there's endings, there's birth and there's death. All of these encounters we meet in our lives and in our hearts, which are called in the Taoist tradition, the world of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And it's, it's so true that in our lives, we often feel to be just balanced in such a delicate way. And that our sense of balance is one that can feel so fragile and tenuous. And we seem to easily fall. We easily fall into extremes of response, extremes of reaction. We can get lost easily. How often we meet these kind of polarities, these extremes, in our encounters with the world, you know, a relationship that we once sought refuge in falls apart. We're secure in a line of work and suddenly our jobs are threatened. We can be so healthy and in a moment it can turn to illness. Friends that we've trusted in can become enemies very quickly. We can at one moment in our lives be basking in praise and congratulation and it can turn so quickly into the exposure and the meeting with judgment and criticism. And we encounter all of that happening in reverse. You know, we can feel at times so lonely or, or lost in a kind of dark isolation. And suddenly it's relieved and opened by a new intimacy with another person. You know, we can just feel like we're sinking in anxiety and suddenly there's a lifeline we find in ourselves. Or we find through someone else and a new pathway opens for us. Just as we can feel like we're really buying into the blame and, and, the, and the criticism, we can suddenly meet words of encouragement and support. These extremes we meet outwardly in our experience. And they reflect also with some of the highs and the lows that we encounter in our own hearts and minds. Where we see happiness can be seem so quickly shattered and unhappiness can open very unpredictably into joy. What we love in one moment we can actually hate just as much in the next. We can feel very compassionate towards someone and then maybe it sours into resentment and resentment can soften into appreciation. 
how often you've experienced this in your meditation. You, you can get to a place where, you know, finally it feels like there's this serenity they talked about in the program. And, you know, you just as you're basking there, it gets swallowed. You know, you get ambushed by chaos, it seems, out of nowhere. And equally, you know, you can feel to be so floundering in that chaos as if it's going to last forever. And just like a cloudy sky opening, suddenly there's this this beam of lightness, of warmth that opens up for us. One of the truths, one of the realities that we all share is that none of us go, uh, in our lives are going to reach the point where we can retire from change. The perhaps unfortunate news is that there is no enlightened retirement. Joy and sorrow, pain and pleasure, beginnings and endings, they are always going to be part of our lives, no matter how enlightened or how unenlightened we are. Life is never going to stay the same for us, and people are never going to stand still for us. But that outwardly and inwardly, life is going to continue to surprise us. And much of the wisdom we actually learn in this path is the real willingness to be surprised and the art of welcoming surprise. And we also learn about what it might mean to stay steady, to find equanimity and balance amidst some of these extremes and polarizations that are intrinsic to living. It is possible that we, may, we cannot retire from life, but it may be possible that we can retire from the endless turbulence and swings of our own hearts and minds. The changing events, the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows we meet in our experience, our relationships and our lives teach us some very simple and powerful truths. In this fragile life, there is not one thing that we can grasp hold of. We cannot hold on to anything at all. We can't control the events and changes that come to us. And just as we cannot control successfully that outer world, our inner world, the body of mind and feeling, is also a package that comes without guarantee. There are no guarantees here. We cannot guarantee what's going to come in the next moment. To receive this truth, this lesson, it comes to us over and over in our lives, but it's actually one of the most difficult places for us difficult lessons for us to make peace with, to really embrace and to accept. Now, how is it, you know, if you reflect on your life, even your experience here, how are we in this roller coaster of living? The changes, the extremes, the highs and the lows, it's often a place we don't actually do that well. It's often a place where we find ourselves falling out of balance. That we easily find ourselves somehow lost in either the events of our lives that are changing 
or in the emotions and the reactions that we have in relationship to them. You know, intuitively, I think we do appreciate the ungraspable, the uncontrollable nature of life. And yet that's a very frightening, it can seem like a very frightening reality. One that's not easy to accept. It's not easy for us to accept that we're actually not going to find any authentic or lasting refuge. Any authentic, lasting refuge of calm, of ease, of happiness in a world of possessions, of roles, of objects, of people or achievements. We would really like to believe that we can. And that's why we sometimes very heroically continue trying to build sandcastles on the shores of an ocean. Because if we were really to give up that quest of trying to find, you know, real reliability and guarantees in the world around us, if we gave that up, we would be asked to find an authentic refuge within ourselves. And actually, it only takes a few days of sitting with yourself and you see what this mind and this body does. And you think, "Uh uh-uh, there's no authentic refuge here either. And that can feel, you know, as if the ground beneath you is really uncertain. To try and control the world, to try and grasp the ungraspable, to try and make the world stand still for us, to be something that we want, this can really be be a very lifelong mission of busyness. You know, endlessly modifying, endlessly improving, endlessly grasping. And it can be really subtle. You know, it's not just that we're going out there building castles and fortresses. You know, we can do it in here too. That we have this lifelong mission of improvement and perfection. You know, sometimes people see this almost in their kind of meditation portfolio. You know, they say, oh yeah, you know, in 89 I worked on anger, you know, and then in 90 I worked on jealousy, 91 I worked on resentment, you know, 92 I did this, you know. And almost as if somewhere behind there there's this image of perfection. You know, that is so deeply ingrained in our world that there is this point of perfection that if we try hard enough, if we really make enough effort, we're going to get there. You know, and, and we live in a culture actually that demands perfection of everything, doesn't it? You know, so I was watching this, this, proud, this documentary on TV about growing apples. You know, and they took you on this walk through this apple orchard, you know, and they said, you know, and they showed you these different kinds of apples. You know, one was like this heavy pesticide sprayed orchard and the other one was this organic orchard. And they said, look, there's, a, there's an apple that people want to buy. You know, there's the perfect apple. You know, and there's the apple people, people don't want to buy that apple. You know, that's an imperfect apple because it has this funny shape, you know. You know, and maybe we don't, you know, I, I mean, I notice when I go in a store to buy apples, you know, find yourself look, picking them up and just looking for, I know that one's slightly bruised, you know, that's not a perfect apple, you know, or that one's slightly off balance, you know, that's not the perfect apple. You put them down and you keep looking for this perfect apple. I mean, I, I find myself doing this sometimes, as if nature makes perfect apples. I mean, nature doesn't make perfect anything. 
nature makes apples to be very different from each other. You know, and yet, it also, sometimes you get the perfect apples and you notice they have absolutely no taste at all. <laughs> you know? They're perfect, they have absolutely no flavor. And yet, somehow, that kind of mythology or that kind of belief system gets woven into our own psyche, our own structure. And we bring it through our lives and we bring it into our meditation, you know. And in a way, it's trying, it is a kind of grasping, grasping onto this image that we try and mold ourselves into. And all the time, not appreciating doing that, how much we're constantly actually condemning ourselves. Because there's no room for the imperfection. There's no allowance, no acceptance, no beauty found in the imperfect. That beauty or acceptability is only seen to lie within that which we imagine is perfect. But we can get very busy, anyway, we can get very busy in this search for perfection. You know, endlessly modifying, it consumes so much energy, and there's often behind that energy, actually, it's a very fearful energy. You know, grasping is a very fearful energy. To try and make something stand still, it's almost as if we carry this belief system on some level, that if we aren't in control, if we aren't in charge, if we don't control things, then somehow we're going to be completely out of control. You know, and you know what out of control looks like in our world. You know, it means it looks like we're going to be a mad woman, you know, or, you know, we're going to be kind of, you know, stomping through the world, screaming, you know, with our hair in tatters, a bag lady, you know. There's all these terrors, you know, of what being out of control actually means, you know. Our world is going to fall apart, you know, nobody's going to love us. That's often a bottom line fear that can be so convincing that we don't even question whether it's true. You know, it's interesting to explore this whole dimension of control. I mean, out of control in a single day, you know. What, sometimes what moves us, you know, in some of our actions, some of our choices, you know, in, in when we find ourselves pursuing something in the day or avoiding something else, you know. I mean, the knee only has to have a little sensation and already we're jumping, you know, out of our skins, you know. Something really terrible is going to happen there. We don't actually know that. But we suspect it might be true, you know. We've checked the notice board a hundred times today. I mean, you know, five days, has anything ever changed on the notice board? No, sorry. You know, same old schedule, you know, same old stuff up there. But we know it hasn't changed, you know. We, we've really made sure we're on top of it, you know. Sometimes we find ourselves reaching out to do this, you know. This kind of pursuit, avoidance. And this kind of busyness or doing or grasping, of course, that's one of the responses to change or, or one of the, the ways in which anxiety around change or anxiety around the unknown manifests. Another response is, of course, to try and pretend that change happens to everybody and everything except us. You know, and, you know, so maybe we create a world that's filled, you know, with, with uh, order, with routine, you know, we know exactly what happened. You know, my father is one of the classic people of this, you know, I mean, like, like if coffee doesn't get served at 11, you know, and lunch at 12 and dinner at 5, it's like his whole world actually dissolves into this really weird place. You know, we can fill our lives out with these little routines, these little places of order, as if this is somehow going to keep the tigers away. It's going to keep the tigers away. 
or else part of that denial mechanism is actually to close down, and that's the very sad part. With the fear, the, the inner insecurity can be so strong that we, we feel that closing down somehow protects us, or that we can feel so deprived or so alienated from a refuge within ourselves that we feel closing down will actually... This is actually a way of trying to distance ourselves from life. I was pretty shocked to read that last year in America that 600,000 children were prescribed antidepressants. And, you know, shocking, not because there's something wrong with antidepressants, but in interviewing these children, that the one child says, you know, it's easier not to care, that it's dangerous to care. You know, almost as if it's dangerous to be touched by life, to be exposed to the changes, to be exposed to the unpredictability, as if somehow within that there is no safety or no refuge for us. In the turbulence and the changes and the demands of our lives, we can very easily lose the art of balance and easily lose our way in knowing how to find a sense of refuge in ourselves in each moment. And yet this knowing how to find balance is the most important of all arts because it is the art and the wisdom that allows us to respond, to be spacious, and yet to really feel that power and strength of calmness and equanimity which can embrace all of life. You know, there are those who respond to the unpredictability of life with, with control and grasping. There are those who withdraw. And there are also those who actually become somewhat addicted to the intensity of extremes. Have you ever seen any of these things where people do really far-out stuff? You know, like recently I watched a, a, this thing on television where a person was doing a bungee jump into the Grand Canyon. I mean, can you imagine that's really a pleasant sensation? I can't imagine anybody would find that a pleasant sensation to jump off the edge of the Grand Canyon on the end of a piece of elastic. I mean, this, you know, this just cannot be a pleasant sensation. And yet, you know, you see in our lives, you know, the, the bigger roller coasters, you know, that sometimes the self-mortification in different ways, you know, we've become actually much more sophisticated in our culture in kind of self-mortification. You know, the ways of ex pursuing extremes. It's almost as if, you know, when we, you know, there's the outer events, certainly, of gain and loss, of, you know, pleasure and pain, of, of praise and blame, and these are really intense experiences. But sometimes they also get us in touch with the very intense emotions and responses in relationship to them. You know, and one of the things that happens in intensity of emotion is we feel really awake. You know, we feel really alive. We feel really energized. You know, it's like you notice how something really startling in your life that's really challenging. You know, I mean, there's no danger of us not paying attention, is there? I mean, we feel really awake. And the sad part is that sometimes the only, the only source we see of that wakefulness is things happening to us. You know, so it's like, 
How do we get more sounds, more sensations, more experiences, more feelings? <coughs> you know, there can be a kind of falling in love with that, <coughs> that emotional intensity. The problem is, of course, that what was intense in one moment quickly becomes not intense. And so we need yet more and more and more. This also happens in meditation. You know, a friend of mine had trained for many years. You know, she, she said she was always used to something really dramatic happening in meditation. You know, there was always a crisis. You know, she was actually in crisis mode for years, you know. And then one time she went to do a retreat and like, not, there was no crisis. You know, and she went to the teacher and she said, you know, I think there's something wrong. You know, there, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing for me to work on. And he said to her, I think this might be calm. She said, no, calm, I don't do calm. You know, and it's like, calm's not my vocabulary. You know, calm is something that happens. But there can even be a sense of there being something missing, even in the painful, not because of being in love with pain, but because of the love of the kind of emotional wakefulness. But actually many of those times of wakefulness in our lives when we're really startled into wakefulness by, you know, something really start really startling, the death of someone we love. You know, when our own house is in question. Those moments give us a taste of what wakefulness can be, and yet the real wakefulness we have a taste of has that sense of vitality, but not the fear. But not the fear, not the fear of loss. You know, and to an intensity addict, actually, you know, words like equanimity and balance and calm, these are actually really not very appealing. You know, for an intensity addict, you hear the word equanimity and it, it's kind of like somebody offering you a meditation center breakfast to be your meal for the rest of your life. You know, like porridge, 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 more porridge, more porridge, more porridge. You know, and that's what feels like, like it's some kind, like equanimity becomes equated with some sort of numbness or blandness. Again, this can be so convincing that we don't question whether it's true. But there's another source of vitality and life and richness and wakefulness that actually is not dependent on intensity and it's not dependent on more sensations and more thoughts and more experiences, more attainment. To learn to discover a place of balance that's not fragile, to learn to discover a sense of refuge in our lives, actually we really it's really important for us to become really genuinely interested in those moments and events where we do flounder, where we do feel out of control, where we do feel anxiety and insecurity as if we have nothing to hold on to. You know, isn't it strange, you know, that this practice is actually dedicated to getting to a place where we hold on to nothing at all? And it seems like every step of the way is built upon, you know, moments of grasping. You know, our grasp hold of this, our grasp hold of this, grasp hold of that. And yet we're actually what we're dedicated to is learning not to grasp anything at all. 
So we need to be really interested in those moments of being lost when we're captivated either by an event or we're captivated by our response to an event. When we find ourselves entangled in an emotional storm of intensity, when we find ourselves encountering pleasure and pain, praise and blame, whether it's outer or inner, gain and loss, because we really can begin to understand what happens to us in those moments. And one of the things that happens within those moments when we become lost, of course, is a kind of amnesia. Probably most everybody in this room has had the experience of both falling in love and falling out of love. It's a real, they're really, you know, they're painful, but they're also incredibly interesting experiences. You notice when you fall in love, everything is lovable. Even the most objectionable things in another person. That's actually quite lovable. You know, you can go into a restaurant with them, they're sitting there and they're slurping their soup. And you think, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> you know, and maybe you fall out of love. And you happen to meet that same person in a retreat and you find yourself sitting at the table beside them at tea time, still slurping their soup. That thing you found so lovable, you know, and you were sure you were going to love forever how they slurped their soup. You know, you were totally forgotten that there was another way of seeing that slurping. That same thing you found so lovable becomes suddenly the most onerous, horrendous thing you've ever encountered. And yet, even when you find yourself being so judgmental about it, you also forget that you found it so lovable. You know, you come in the meditation room and in the midst of a kind of, you know, really one of those pleasant sittings, there's this immediate burst of amnesia, isn't there? You know, it's like, oh, yes, yeah, find me here, you're going to last forever. You know, you come into an, a sitting that you call a bad sitting, unpleasant sitting, the same amnesia. This too is going to last forever. You know, that kind of being lost is when we get so hooked by the contents of our experience. So believing in the contents of ex our experience, so defining of ourselves by the contents of our experience, that actually we forget that the next moment would be entirely different. So really, we keep setting ourselves up, too, for disaster. You know, when suddenly change happens, and we so relied on things staying the same, that it feels devastating. But the change is not devastating. Change is the nature of life. Grasping can be pretty devastating. Because it ain't, it's not going to hang around for us, no matter how tightly we hold. Understanding, you know, learning to undo amnesia. This is actually a big part of this practice. We learn to undo amnesia, these forgetful places when we become lost. And we learn to undo, this is not bad news, you know, understanding that this moment is something actually that's quite unique, but it's already, if we pay attention to it, in the process of changing into something else. To really see that, that's not bad news. That's actually really liberating. And it really teaches us to actually hold the events and the changes in our lives in 
an understanding of reality which is inclusive rather than exclusive. To be interested is to gently explore these moments when we become lost, to see how they're already changing. And the only thing that prevents us from seeing that, of course, is our entrancement. What happens when we get involved, when we get caught, when we get hooked, is that we get very contracted around the event, around the feeling, around the thought, around the memory. And as our consciousness gets contracted through grasping, what happens is that the intensity of that which we have grasped hold of, the size of it grows, so that it fills up all the space of our awareness. And that's what contractedness is. You know, like when you, 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 know, you go through sitting obsessing about one person or one conversation or one thing, and you notice that in that obsessing, you don't hear anymore. It's like, you know, your body has disappeared, your body consciousness has disappeared. There's only this one thing. You know, we're talking ourselves into it. We're almost like we're talking ourselves into suffering. That's what contractedness feels like, is that there's this shrinking of the consciousness around a story, around an event, around a feeling, which actually solidifies, of course, that which is being shrunk around. And we really see then in that moment that our world is formed by what we pay attention to. Our world is actually formed by what we give attention to. So if we really, you know, find ourselves, you know, taking a hooked into a memory, for example, a very unpleasant memory about an encounter with someone, you know, we dwell upon it, we obsess upon it, our, our consciousness, our hearts and minds contract, that actually forms our world. And actually it colors our perceptions of everything, ourselves, others. And we lose that sense of expansiveness. This is what is called unwise attention. Unwise attention is grasping hold of the content, thought, feeling, sound, sensation, grasping hold of the associations with it, dwelling upon it, and building our world in that moment. And we see this happen time and time again in our lives. You know, you can go in for breakfast, you know, and, and maybe you've spent the sitting, you know, before breakfast, you know, kind of already rehearsing how much you're going to enjoy breakfast, you know, and especially that banana and the porridge, you know. And maybe you get there, and you see the line in front of you moving, and the bananas disappearing, and lo and behold, the person in front of you takes the last banana. You know, how that moment, I mean, that can be a truly tragic moment. You know, feels like the whole of your well-being, the whole of your happiness, and perhaps the whole future of your happiness, depended upon that banana being there. You know, and how quickly, you know, you can begin to think about, of course, that person could have been less selfish and left the banana for you, and of course they could have provided more bananas, you know, and I was so calm before the banana disappeared, you know, and I really needed that banana, and then of course there's all these health issues, you know, if I don't have the banana, my potassium level is going to go down, you know, and these cooks often don't, obviously don't understand about potassium levels, you know, and, you know, the mind is suddenly in this whole world of bananas, 
know, as if, you know, this is entirely what our freedom is dependent upon. This happens many times. It's really interesting. It's not something to judge. It's not something to get excited about. It's something to be so interested in. I mean, what would wise attention look like in that that moment? It's not disempowering a person. You know, maybe we need to go and ask for more bananas. But what would wise attention really look like in that moment? The simplicity of seeing, of letting be, of responding to what is right in front of us. Without the self-definition, without the coloring of the world, without the contractedness. I mean, do you realize how paralyzed we are when the mind is contracted? How really divorced we are from any kind of wise action when the mind is contracted? It becomes impossible to move because we're governed. We're governed by this contractedness. Often what really is at the root of so many of these storms, of course, is our feelings, which are going to be with us as long as we live. The feelings that are triggered by perceptions, by sights, by sounds, by memories, by sensations. The feelings, because how we feel about something really does determine how we're going to relate to it. The feelings we're not in control of, you know, we're not in control of the feelings that perceptions bring to us. In this world, we will always meet pleasant pleasant perceptions, sounds, sights, sensations, thoughts. We will always meet unpleasant sounds, sights, sensations, sensations, thoughts, feelings. We'll meet that which is neutral. They don't lead us to fall out of balance. What leads us to fall out of balance is when those sensations, those feelings and those perceptions which have a feeling tone, which are life. Where we fall out of balance is where those feelings are hijacked actually by background underlying tendencies behind them. You know, so the pleasant sensation does get hijacked or overtaken by craving. You know, I need this, I want this, I must have this. So I am. You know, the unpleasant sensation gets overtaken by aversion. This is terrible, I'm terrible. You know, I can never survive this. You know, this is forever. The, uh, the neutral sensation gets overtaken or colored really by delusion. The feeling, you know, there's something missing here, so I've got to fill in the blanks, you know, maybe a little fantasy or a little craving or find something pleasant. And it's in those places of aversion and wanting and delusion where we fall out of balance. And those are equally the places within the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral, where we learn to find balance. Where we learn to find balance. To discover a way of being which is inclusive, which is spacious enough, calm enough, serene enough to actually embrace those changing sensations without contractedness, without amnesia, without being hooked. You know, in, in the Tibetan tradition, the one lama once actually defined equanimity as being equally near to all things. I'm equally near to the unpleasant, as to the pleasant, as to the neutral. Which means I'm equally willing to welcome them. And that makes some difference the willingness to welcome them, to learn from them, to see them as invitations. That willingness to learn allows us to find that place of balance and equanimity that is intimate. It's intimate.
passionate with all things, and yet isn't dependent upon nothing. So take a moment to be quiet. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.